All right, it's the Foghorn. You know what that means. It is time for the Cavaships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, it's been five years since seven sailors were killed when the U.S. Navy destroyer Fitzgerald collided with a Japanese cargo ship, an incident closely followed by another collision between the U.S. destroyer John S. McCain and a merchant ship that killed 10 sailors. Major recriminations followed, but has it made any difference? We'll talk it over with veteran journalist Sam Legrone of USNI News. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. The Chinese on June 17th christened and launched the largest warship ever built outside the United States. The Type 003 aircraft carrier Fujian is the first of a new design that is a great leap in capability over the two smaller carriers already operated by the People's Liberation Army Navy. Thought to displace over 80,000 tons, the ship will be larger than the French carrier Charles de Gaulle or the British carriers Queen Elizabeth and Prince of Wales. And while still about 20,000 tons smaller than the latest U.S. Navy carriers, the Chinese ship is nearly equal in length, over 1,000 feet and in beam. Unusually, the Chinese announced the ship's name and pennant number at launch, a move usually done when a ship is commissioned. Of course, it will still be a year or more before this ship even begins sea trials and even more before its commission. We'll have more on this significant development later on in our discussion. Two major annual naval exercises wrapped up this week. BaltOps, the largest NATO Baltic Sea maritime exercise, concluded June 17th at Kiel, Germany. In the Pacific, the U.S.-only exercise Valiant Shield finished up on June 17th after 12 days of joint operations that included the Ronald Reagan and Abraham Lincoln carrier strike groups. The exercise concluded with the SYNCX, sinking exercise of the decommissioned frigate Vandergrift, FFG-48, an Oliver Hazard Perry frigate that left service in 2015. The Arleigh Burke-class destroyer USS Paul Ignatius arrived at her new home port of Rota, Spain, June 17th, to transfer operations to the U.S. Navy's four deployed Naval Forces Europe. Commissioned in 2019, the ship's arrival is an upgrade for the U.S. ships based in Rota. In new ship news, a construction contract for the third Constellation-class frigate was awarded by the U.S. Navy on June 16th to Fincantieri Marinette Marine. The future USS Chesapeake, FFG-64, is expected to enter service in 2028, preceded by the Constellation, FFG-62, and Congress, FFG-63, already under contract. All the ships will be built at Fincantieri's shipyard in Marinette, Wisconsin. Christening ceremonies for the destroyer John Bassalone, DDG-122, are to be held June 18th at General Dynamics Bath Ironworks in Bath, Maine. The ship is already in the water, having been launched on June 14th. The name honors Medal of Honor recipient John Bassalone, killed in combat on Iwo Jima during World War II, even after being awarded the nation's highest military honor for his actions in 1942 on Guadalcanal. And that's just some of this week's Naval News. Well, as we said at the top, it has been five years since a couple of the most cataclysmic peacetime accidents that have ever hit the United States Navy. In June 17, 2017, the destroyer Fitzgerald 
collided with the Philippine flag container ship ACX Crystal off Japan. Seven sailors were killed in that incident. And just two months later, the John S. McCain collided with the Liberian tanker Alnick MC near Singapore. Ten sailors were killed. The accidents caught world attention, not just national, but world attention. The Navy uh, had conducted a number of investigations, uh, sy systemic investigations, as well as, as the people at fault for those accidents on the scene. Uh, a number of people lost their jobs, all the way, leading all the way up to two three-star vice admirals. So five years later, what do we think? Is anything better? Has anything changed? Has all these efforts at, at, at improving the system and making things better borne fruit? So with us today is uh, our friend and colleague, Sam Legrone of USNI News. Sam, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. And Sam, you have covered this incident, these incidents and this issue from the very moment that they occurred. What do you think five years later? What's your what's your read? So we had a conversation with uh, Swobos, uh, uh, the out of uh, California about the improvements to surface warfare. Swobos, Admiral Kitchener. Admiral Kitchener. Um, so the improvements in surface warfare training and manning and equipping. He was uh, uh, cautiously optimistic about sort of the trend, but I think the number one metric that you can take away for success on how they're doing is that there hasn't really been another collision with um, like this uh, with, with a surface ship uh, since 2017 uh, that's resulted in a class A mishap. Uh, I just got the list from the safety center of everything that they've had uh, afloat that's resulted in a, in a class A mishap. And there, there wasn't another collision or elision with a surface ship. Um, and there have been some minor incidents here and there. So I think that's the number one thing. But it, it was a reawakening that everyone had to get back to basics in terms of ship handling and basic navigation because the, the, the two collisions uh, that were fatal in the Western Pacific, the ultimate underlying issue was that these were basic mistakes that were allowed uh, to fester due to inefficient training and just kind of poor understanding of how the ships operated. Uh, and um, getting back to those basics of just seamanship uh, from a fundamental level from junior officers is appearing to go well, but it's it's such a huge issue kind of across the fleet that was allowed to develop over a couple of decades. And, you know, I think this is another result of the lack of attention being paid to the surface force while everyone was worried about counterterrorism in the Middle East, while uh, uh, everyone was worried about uh, issues that didn't have a lot to do with the maritime and the Navy was kind of um, neglected, specifically the surface force, the surface force, pardon me, that didn't have the protections of, um, you know, the aviation standards that the aviators uh, had assembled uh, since World War II. And then in the submariners that have kind of all their subsafe protocols, nothing like that ever existed for the surface force. Um, so it was a recognition that uh, all of these other communities had these standards created and they paid for it in blood. And this, I think, was the moment for the surface force. And it resulted into all of these changes inside the Navy uh, in terms of what they could do to make things safer but the fundamental demand on surface ships really hasn't changed yet. So I, I think it, it's kind of a roundabout way of saying it's 
the trajectory is positive, but it's too soon to see if there's any kind of systemic change because at any point the demand on the surface ships could go up, 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 up. And the kind of the, the sort of the tentative protections that have been put in place now to kind of preserve the readiness of that force and preserve those skills so they don't get run ragged um, could 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 be superseded at any time by any kind of national crisis or emergency. So I think I think everyone is cautiously optimistic now. Chris, you uh, you know we were on the outside looking in. You were on the inside. You were working for Chief of Naval Operations Richardson at the time of the of the collisions. You actually went to Japan and visited the ship shortly after the the collisions, Fitzgerald. Uh, five years later, what's your read on on the overall state of things? I think Sam brings up good points. I mean, I, I kudos to the surface force for um, using the uh, strategic readiness review and the comprehensive review of, uh, you know, of the surface force incidents, the both reviews that were done at the time to um, go after a number of causal factors um, and then, you, you know, extend that learning across the force. That said, I worry that the root cause, the the fact that we have a smaller than needed uh, overworked force, both in terms of surface and air, hasn't changed, right? So they've gone, they've filled a number of the the holes in the Swiss cheese, if you will, to use a safety center analogy. That they have, they've gone after um, training. They've gone after, um, you, you know, they've used data to uh, identify and and fix a number of other causal factors. But the fact that that they are still balancing um, an older force, a force that is too small for the tasking, and only getting busier. Um, to me, makes us still very much vulnerable um, for um, the types of mishaps that we saw five years ago. So the the leadership has done their part uh, in terms of addressing the issues within the surface Navy. Now it's sort of up to national leaders and, and big Navy leaders, um, in my opinion, to either say no to tasking, which I don't think is going to happen, um, but uh, or... Um, get the the fleet that we need to match that that tasking, um, and you know we we've all followed the the budget issues, and it doesn't look like that's going to happen. So as the force drops to 280 ships here in the next couple of years, I worry that a McCain and a Fitzgerald like situation, um, you, you know, could happen again um, a, a, as people are, are are overworked. The the last thing I would say, um, you know, having gone out to Japan uh, five years ago and saw that. Uh, and and followed um, you know the feedback from people that were on the waterfront, and and I think the trend still exists today. There is a lot put on the commanding officers, the O5s and O6s, um, to make up for shortcomings uh, in resources, uh, and the biggest shortcoming in resource is time. So they are they make very difficult catch twenty two like decisions of where to place their own time where to place the prior, uh, prioritization of their cruise time. Um, and, and I still don't think that the the Navy has it right uh, yet. And so, again, I worry that you're going to see more COs um, making, uh, you know, uh, quote unquote, bad decisions because they they chose the the, the wrong side of, uh, of the coin on, on the bad decision. Uh, you know, and all of this goes back to it's 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 an overworked, uh, under-resourced Navy. And until we get to that issue, 
um, we're really, like I said, just filling uh, holes in the Swiss cheese and not really getting at the the problem in, in the macro. So let's switch this gear just a little bit from the collisions themselves to what you just talked about and the responsibility of commanding officers and the responsibility of the Navy to choose commanding officers wisely and to support those commanding officers once they get in position. So we've had this this month alone, actually since May 31st, there have been six commanding officers relieved of command for a variety of reasons in the Navy. Um, and But they're not ships. Some of them are ships. Uh, there were two destroyers, the Preble and the Bulkley. Um, there was a recruit training command, the Great Lakes School, which, where every sailor uh, learns to be a sailor. Um, Electronic Attack Squadron 137, the Navy, the Naval Justice School. Um, there's, you know, what's the thread here? So the firings have, if anything, seem to be going up. According to the Navy, from 2011 to 2021, about 17 COs a year have been relieved of, of, of a command for a wide variety of reasons. Um, but even this month, we've had three aviation accidents in early June that three different aircraft, all in, all in Southern California somewhere, but um, or California, uh, but three different types of aircraft, a helicopter, an Osprey, and, and, an, um, and, and a, a Super Hornet that killed six service members. The Navy Aviation just ordered a one-day safety stand-down for all of its forces. You have the... Um, submarine connecticut last october uh one of the most advanced and capable ships in the entire world um a handful of submarines with 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 a vast offensive capability uh drove itself into an underwater seamount the investigation showed that uh, there were problems with that entire command for quite some time and they were they were all relieved uh so the submarine force had that, that that's a serious black eye on them the surface force in July, of course, the July 2020, the uh, the Bonham Richard, the assault ship Bonham Richard, catches fire through through negligence. It was started off with arson, but the fire spread through negligence, and the, the ship was destroyed four and a half days. Nothing like that has ever happened. It burned Pierside, and on a large number of people have been held responsible. A lot of screw ups going on there. A lot of systemic screw ups. So these things are continuing throughout the Navy. Uh, it's not just a surface for the destroyers focused on that on that so what what is going on here um and sam i'd like to go to you for this first is that um you know i ask is there something flawed with the screening process that, that selects officers for command um is there something flawed with the navy's support for people once they get there none of these people have these jobs for very long you know uh especially especially active units um, operational units. You're in that job for a year and a half. Two years would be a really long time. And as most people in the civilian world know, it takes about a year and many, many jobs uh, to really, even though you know how to do the job, you, you don't know what all your trade space is. What are, what, you know, how much can I do? What's, what, what's the extent of my authority? What should I be worried about for the people that, who work for you and the, and the multiple commands that you are responsible for? It takes a long time to do that. Is the Navy flawed in its support for these commanding officers who get in these jobs? 
that's a question. I, I mean, I, I certainly look at that. This isn't, you can't just keep pointing the finger at individuals and say, well, they screwed up, they screwed up, they screwed up. Well, how come you have all these people who screw up? What else is happening here? Uh, Sam, what do you think of that? Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I think, I think I'd start with the, the individual reliefs that are happening right now. Um, we asked the Navy, is there any kind of correlation to uh, to any of this? Is there any kind of like common thread? Because, you know, I mean, that's that's a, a journalist instinct is I right. see a lot of one thing happening that indicates that maybe there's some kind of trend and they will uh, tell you up and down that they're unrelated. Um, actually, Jeff Shogel over at Task and Purpose right. uh, wrote the story that we probably should have earlier this week. Um, where they kind of look at um, look at all of these uh, unrelated cases and the fact that the Navy doesn't do a lot to sort of explain what the underlying reason was for any of these. Well, they uh, do, but they do. After, I mean, even, even this, this past week, the Secretary of the Navy came out, censured five officers for the 2020 sinking of a Marine amphibious assault vehicle that killed nine service people. Sure. Uh, but initially, and, and that and that initial bump um, and that initial story is usually kind of the, the, the beginning and end of a lot of these stories about reliefs and not saying anything other than loss of confidence just kind of uh, gives the sense that the, the, the entire system is in dysfunction when, hey, you could have just caught in a bad run, of, a run of bad luck, you know, like one of the destroyer skippers caught a DUI in in early june um you know that could happen to uh you know that that that's kind of not the same as toxic leadership or right. that's not the same as like a, you know kind of gross negligence while underway it's almost um, refreshing i mean to not not to make light of it but it's almost refreshing i mean a dui is it's a common human failing people screw up it happens uh as opposed to like you said something systemic toxic leadership what is that um, and, 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 and who's to judge and who's, who's, who's doing all the judges here? Well, I think, I think there's, a, I think there's a, a question to explore right now is I think the Navy's kind of, um, struggling with how do we do this cultural change to kind of step away from the zero defect mentality. Right. And I think you've seen some kind of signs throughout the year that they're, they're struggling with how to kind of present that conversation. So you had Gilday earlier this year, uh, Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Mike Gilday, come out with a new sort of charge of command that talked a lot more about individual responsibility. Um, but then also, you know, we need to have some type of space there for people to make mistakes and not ruin their career. You know, yeah. there's the, the, the old saw about uh, Lieutenant Nimitz, you know, ground in a ship. And, you know, if, right. if he were alive today, he wouldn't have made it past 03. Um, so all of that being said, there is a real, you know, we're getting the sense that there is a real uh, kind of struggle inside the service. Well, what counts as a career ending mistake and what is something that we can go and work with? And that's something that I, I think has been kind of further confused a little bit. Uh, you know, earlier this month, the Secretary of the Navy put out an all nav that reinforce this idea of uh, individual responsibility and making sure people are, uh, you know, held accountable for their actions. And that came just ahead of the secretary letters of censure for um, the 
command chain uh, of the Navy and uh, the Marine Corps for the AAV um, sinking that that lost um, those Marines and that sailor. And and that's, you know, what is the message? And I think it's a little confused. Like we got to maintain the standard, but you can you're allowed to make a mistake, but you have to make maintain the standard. And And I think how that is translating and percolating down um, to sort of the lower echelons of command is, is really confusing. Um, and ultimately, I think you see inconsistent application of what those standards are uh, throughout the force. I think you're right, Sam. It is a very tough issue to um, to, to navigate. Um, I, I think it's very tough for the O5s and O6s who look around them and, you know, re really sort of feel by alone, um, you, you know, that in many cases, their chain of command, uh, you, you know, has set up conditions that simply if you get through command, um, you know, regardless of uh, how successful, just the fact that, you, you know, have a band at the beginning, have a band at the end, um, you, you know, you've done something superhuman. You know, the numbers don't bear that out. I mean, the, the, these numbers that I'm sure the Navy will tell you are, are still relatively low when you look at all of the command billets. Um, but I mean, you, you know, there is a lot of effort that has gone into getting these men and women into these positions. What I worry about, I worried about it in uniform and the bosses that I worked for worried about, uh, you know, thought a lot about this and t talked a lot about it. Have has the Navy and have we as uh, folks that are around the Navy culture, have we set up a, a bar that is too high? Is the only lever that somebody can pull to fire a, a commanding officer, right? Is there not a way to go and right. uh, address a mistake, to remediate, to have the commanding officer learn from that mistake, have the crew learn from it, make them better? You know, if you decide that that's not something that 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 offense was something that should prevent them from, uh, you know, being promoted to the next rank. OK, that's fine. But if you find yourself in a case where every incident and I, I put ethical and personal behavior aside um, because I think that that's pretty cut and dry. But in terms of professional um, hiccups, if you make a mistake underway, should you be fired or should you be given that opportunity to learn? And I, I still don't think, I mean, rhetoric aside, I still don't think the CNO and, and the, the three and four stars ha have figured out how to make that a reality. Right. Um, you know, certainly the numbers don't bear out uh, the, the words that the CNO spoke about in his uh, charge of command. Um, and, and, and so I think those words tend to become punchlines to jokes uh, on the waterfront as they hear one thing uh, and see another. Well, I think we could keep talking about this for, for quite a while. I think after five years and all that's been said and done, um, it remains a work in progress. It's still an incomplete um, and we'll see how, how things bear out. But I don't think it, it, it would seem to me that uh, nobody can sit back right now and say, great, mission accomplished, fix that. So uh, changing topics completely and switching over, zooming over to the uh, to Shangjing Island outside of Shanghai, uh, the Chinese on June 17th christened and floated out their new aircraft carrier, the Fujian. This is the Type 003 carrier. Um, the, it's been under construction for at least five years. Um, the design goes back at least seven or eight years. 
Um, so this isn't something that just popped up. Um, it's been, been eagerly watched by uh, satellite photos for uh, quite some time. But this is a very, very different ship from the carriers that they've, uh, the, the Russian-designed carriers, the two small carriers that the Chinese have been operating for some years, the Leoning and Shandong. This ship is much more like a U.S. Nimitz-class carrier, a full-sized aircraft carrier. It is not nuclear-powered. Um, appears to be gas turbines, but it's uh, it's about 80,000 tons, which is roughly 20,000 tons or so full load, less than a Nimitz, but it's about the same size. It's over 1,000 feet long. It's over 200 feet uh, in beam. Um, it has three catapults, three EMALs, electro electromagnetic launch system catapults as are being installed now on the, uh, on the Gerald R. Ford class. Uh, this is a major launch. It's a, it seems to be the largest warship built outside the United States ever by anybody. That includes the uh, the, the, the French carrier Charles de Gaulle. It includes the British carriers uh, Queen Elizabeth and Prince of Wales. This this, this is it a game changer? I don't know, but um, it certainly changes the the uh, complexion of what the Chinese are capable of putting to sea. Um, thoughts <laughs> folks yeah um i'll talk about it a little bit so sure. i think i think the, the the biggest thing that stands out for me on this particular ship is that mm -hmm. they've gotten to the point where they have catapults so mm -hmm. the real achilles heel for the chinese air wing uh has been their j-15s have been um really unable to launch with fully loaded munitions um right. they the the chinese Here, those 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 two smaller carriers have ski jumps right they have ski jumps and they're they're not catapult assisted and but they so, are but, but they do have arresting gears the aircraft they do have arresting gears right. right but the but the there's always been this notion that the j-15s the chinese carrier fighters have always been really underpowered already uh gas turbines is not necessarily something that the chinese are particularly known for mm -hmm. especially domestically they're getting better mm -hmm. um but that's always been kind of the 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 first two carriers the the teeth of them have always been blunted by the fact that you can only have a limited amount of armaments on those uh, j-15s when they take off with a catapult that changes a lot and, yep. and it expands the amount of uh, weapons you can put on an aircraft uh, as they fly so that's that's I wonder where they got that technology hmm. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, you know, we've been thinking about the, the Chinese fleet a lot lately. Um, and uh, one of the, the key characteristics of uh, Chinese naval development, I mean, pretty much all military development, um, and we've run a couple of pieces on this at USI News, is uh, they have a whole doctrine on ingesting intellectual property, um, reconstituting it uh, for Chinese materials, and then adapting it to their needs specifically. I think you can look at countless dozens and dozens of examples in in their military kit stuff that looks like f-35s and stuff that looks like uh, right. uh um m-16s and or mm -hmm. i'm sorry m-4s and and all of that comes from probably industrial espionage um on on all levels where uh you have a a, a central government uh, that conducts espionage and then provides it to their uh their military base so um I'm sorry, their military industrial base. And uh, yeah, 
So, I mean, I, I don't know anything specifically about their electronic magnetic launchers. I don't know if they're directly derived from, um, you know, the, the U.S. versions. But um, I, I think definitely they've been looking pretty closely at um, the emails on the Ford class just as, as proof of concept for sure. It's a big step for the for, for the Chinese. I mean, as uh, Sam mentioned, for for all those reasons, um, I, I had the opportunity to visit the the Lining, uh, which was the the Russian carrier that they uh, that they purchased, um, and you know, r- right down to the Ouija board in Flight Deck Control, the um, the board that shows uh, you, you know the model of of what's going on on the Flight Tech. I mean, they they were very proud of the fact that they had taken that from um, American Naval Aviation. Um, their uniforms, their shirt colors, uh, the way they conduct operations on the flight deck. I mean, they were very upfront about the fact that they had mined, uh, in their words, open source information. But it was obvious that they had also uh, had the uh, the ability to to get uh, you know controlled information as well. So um, it'll be interesting to see how this uh, you know how this ship operates and if we can glean anything in the open press. Chris, you've talked about for years how, um, whether it's the media or pundits, um, we we don't really have access to um, the raw information about Chinese vessels, right? We don't know where they have hiccups, where they make mistakes, where there's technology issues. You know, we bemoan LPD-17, DDG-1000, LCS, the Joint Strike Fighter, you know, uh, the Ford class, all the problems that we know about in our Navy, but we don't hear about similar problems in the Chinese Navy, um, you know, mostly for obvious reasons, but it'll be interesting to see how quickly the ship is out and underway. And if we can glean anything about, you know, sortie generation and um, the types of things that we use to uh, to judge our own progress um, as we see this ship operating uh, in and around China. Right. While you get a lot of people saying, oh, my God, they launched it. It's ready to go. Number one, the media, an awful lot of people in the media do not understand that launch does not mean it's ready to go. It just means you put it in the water. That's pretty much it. Uh, It's a long way from being ready to go. But um, even then, it's going to take years in development. This is from a technological point of view, this is not unlike the the Ford class carrier and that they are making a lot of leaps here in a lot of areas in technology and a lot of untried systems. Their combat system is new. The launch system obviously will be new. I'm sure they have a new um, recovery system, Uh, not to mention the size of the ship and the capability of it. This is a whole new element for them and uh, operate that stuff effectively takes it takes a lot it takes an awful lot and they will have problems we will not hear about them but um it, it, is it a game changer yet no but it certainly will be something a significant element to to factor into the into the capabilities of the chinese navy and their intent and by the way the fact that even that they named the ship is very unusual usually the chinese don't announce the name or the pennant number until the ship is commissioned uh, it was very, very unusual that they had a they had a more traditional christening ceremony, uh, where they they uh, announced the name and the number. So Fujian, Fujian is a province. All the all the aircraft carriers are named after provinces. Uh, Liaoning and Shandong are named after two province, two north eastern uh, provinces of China, coastal provinces. Uh, Fujian is the is the prov- is the province that lies directly across the Taiwan Strait from Taiwan. 
So you can draw in whatever significance you'd like into that, but it's not just a, doesn't seem to be a random name, uh, but it is unusual that they announced the name. So we'll we'll see. The Chinese are, are very proud of it. There's a lot of uh, a lot of video out of it already, uh, even hours after the after the float off and the ceremony. But um, we'll all be keeping an eye on it. But it's still going to take quite a while to put that into operation and make it an effective unit. So uh, that, I think that'll do it for our discussion today. Uh, our guest has been uh, Sam Legrome, the editor of USNI News. Uh, Sam, thank you as always for being on. It's always always really good to get your insight on the podcast. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right. Well, this week, Mr. Cervello has some thoughts on the legacy of those collisions five years ago. Thanks, Chris. You get the Navy, you prioritize. We have talked about this idea many times. That was the case five years ago before the collisions that killed 17 sailors, and it remains the case today. And while the surface community has worked very hard to learn from every possible lesson from Fitzgerald and McCain, the Navy as a whole remains fundamentally unchanged. One need only look at the visible condition of our warships and the recent spat of mishaps and firings to know that something isn't right with America's Navy. And while the Navy will tell you publicly that there is no direct correlation between recent events, those that have served in uniform and follow the service closely know differently. The single most important mission of our Navy is to be a clear and visible sign to friends and foes alike that America is on station, has the watch, is walking the beat. The Navy's job more than any other service is to make the bad guy say, not today. Today's not the day to cause trouble. Well, it's no headline to say that our Navy remains undersized and underfunded to carry out this mission, to say nothing of a high-end fight. As it continues to shrink in both size and stature, I fear the calculus of our enemies will begin to change as they see the visible signs of a force rotting from within. Where's the leadership, the strategy, the unifying principle that unites warfare communities, that forces OSD to prioritize Navy funding, that helps Congress help the Navy help themselves? The hope five years ago was that the deadly collisions and resulting investigations would be a wake up, something that would shake the Navy and OSD to their core, forcing them to realize that you can only under-resource a service and turn a blind eye to warning signs for so long before something catastrophic occurs and the service begins to lose its fighting edge. Obviously, this wasn't the case. So now what? What will be the event? Who will be the person either inside or outside of the service that forces a wake up, that forces a change in funding and prioritization? I honestly don't know, but I sure hope it comes soon. Roger that, Chris. All right. Well, folks, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vago Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye.